Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Bloomsbury, publisher of the debut memoir, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by acclaimed literary essayist T. Kira Madden. Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls tells the raw and redemptive story of T. Kira Madden's coming of age and reckoning with desire as a queer biracial teenager amidst the fierce contradictions of Boca Raton, Florida. It is the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, available now from Bloomsbury. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Uh, Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? Incredible. It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Just one person at just one time. How's it going, everybody? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. It is good to be with you. I am thrilled to have Sam Lipsight on the program. This is the second time he's been on this show, but it was the first time that I've ever had a chance to sit down in a room with him uh, in person and talk with him. He was here to celebrate the publication of his new novel, Hark, which is available now from Simon & Schuster. It is generating rave reviews. I believe that Sam Lipsight is one of our very finest writers. Certainly one of our very finest funny writers of depth, if I may characterize him as such. He is uh, incredible on the page, and I kind of revere what he's able to do, and I'm just really excited to get to share this conversation with you guys. I should say, uh, as a side note, that I wasn't sure if Sam and I had a good conversation until just recently when I listened to the uh, playback. And the reason for that is that on the day that he came over, and I, you know, I think we recorded in the late afternoon, his flight was delayed coming out of San Francisco, and then he kind of rushed over here to do the show before heading up to Skylight Books in Los Feliz for a reading. So we were working against the clock a little bit, but he made time, and he came over, and he was game. Now, uh, as for my part, I uh, had taken a microdose that day. A friend of mine, uh, I was with a friend of mine earlier in the day, and uh, you guys know, for people who have listened to this show, like I've been fascinated with psychedelics for years, and I'm always talking about it, 
And uh, I read, you know, I've read books about it. I read the Michael Pollan book. I read Tao Lin's book. I read Ayelet Waldman's book, which is all about microdosing and how it helped her uh, alleviate uh, her depression and so on and so forth. And so I'm fascinated by this. Plus, like every coder in Silicon Valley is uh, supposedly microdosing as a kind of biohacking performance enhancement thing. It's just hard not to be fascinated by it. I should say, too, that part of the appeal of microdosing is that it is sub-psychoactive, which is to say you don't even feel it. It carries with it none of the normal attributes of the psychedelic experience. It's not like you're bugging out or anything like that. You take it and you don't even know, and yet it delivers these positive effects, supposedly. So there I am with my friend on the day that Sam Lipside is due to come to my house, and I'm talking about this. And my friend, who is like one of the few authentic uh, bohemian people that I know, like everybody else is sort of pretending. Like I, when I was a hippie, I was sort of like wearing a costume, but this guy's like an authentic bohemian. He's like the genuine article. And I'm telling him about Ayelet Waldman's book, I think it was. And he's like, you want a microdose? He's like, I'll give you a microdose. Like he just had him on hand. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right, yeah, let's do it. I'm like, I'm not going to feel it. Might as well. I'll take a microdose. I got to talk to Sam Lipsite. Maybe this will help me in the interview to be more lucid. Maybe it will deliver subtle but powerful effects that will enhance my performance as the host of this podcast. So I take this microdose. It's probably like right around like, you know, just after lunch. And uh, it starts to kick in. Like I I barely took any at all, but uh, you know, I have a very delicate system. I'm very sensitive to anything. I don't care what it is, whether you like it's weed uh, or even booze at my age. And I think with my particular biochemistry and neurochemistry, I'm just particularly sensitive. The littlest bits will affect me. And I knew this. And yet, there I was. And so, you know, I don't want to overstate it. It's not like I was completely flipping out or anything. But when Sam showed up at my house, I was feeling weird. There was... (laughs) There was just like a, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in my brain or more than I was typically accustomed to. And I could feel, I could feel like, uh, like my eyes felt a little strange. I think my pupils were more dilated than normal. And uh, there was like a kind of a sweatiness happening in my palms a little bit. It was like the faintest hint of paranoia that was working on me. And I think too, I was just anxious anyway, because I like, I revere Sam Lipsight. I'm like, oh my God, Sam Lipsight's coming to my house. I got to do this interview. You know, I'm always a little nervous when writers are coming over to my house. And especially when it's a writer whose work I have like such reverence for. So, you know, he's like, it's all this combination, I think, of like natural anxiety plus this microdose. And I, uh, I have him over and like, as he's getting acclimated to my garage, I feel like I was sort of babbling. It's like talking about my day and talking about work and I don't even know what. And as I'm doing this, I'm thinking to myself, like, can he notice this? Is he aware of what's going on? <laughs> uh, 
And uh, that was kind of the, the mode that I was in throughout the entire interview, where I'm going through the motions. I'm trying to make sure I stay focused, but I'm having to work harder at it than I normally do. And uh, I'm wondering, like, can he tell? That, that was kind of that was kind of it. I was convinced that Sam Lipside could tell that I was low-key shrooming during our interview, but would not have that particular understanding of my of my circumstances and would just think that I was weird. So the good news is I uh, have listened to the playback and the interview is fine. It's, a, it's actually better than fine. It's a great talk. I, I feel like we got a good one. Uh, you know, everything that was happening was happening for me psychologically. And I don't think came out at least, uh, you know, in a uh, egregious way in my duties as host. Though for longtime listeners, I mean, you guys tell me. I don't know if you'll notice. There were like a couple of moments where I'm sort of spacey, but I think overall, I, I kind of pulled it off. And Sam was great. So, you know, we go through the process of the interview, then Sam has to leave uh, to get to his reading at Skylight Books. I shake his hand, I thank him, he walks out the door, and I'm like, holy shit, like, I can't believe... I did that. I, I was like kind of kicking myself. I was like, I can't believe I was shrooming <laughs> while talking to Sam Lipside for this podcast. What kind of moron am I? And why, you know, why am I such a, like a weakling? I barely took any. So, uh, you know, that was it. Or at least that was it for the day. I kind of uh, put a pin in it. I took the dog for a walk, probably ate some dinner, and then I, uh, I went to bed eventually. And uh, I like woke up the next day, and as is my nature, I continued to uh, sort of obsess about it. Like, wow, that was strange. I can't believe I did that. I wonder if Sam could tell. I wonder if Sam thinks I'm weird. I wonder if Sam feels bad about the entire experience. I wonder if Sam thinks that I'm unprofessional or uh, stupid. And then, like, you know, the spiral continued to the point where I was like, you know what, I gotta just email him. I gotta just email Sam and explain the situation to him. He's an understanding human being. He'll probably think it's, uh, you know, funny. Or at least I hope he will. And so I just laid it out. I wrote this lengthy email to Sam Lipsight where I explained the entire situ you know, situation. Where I was like, dear Sam, thank you so, <laughs> thank you so much for coming over. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, I have to confess that uh, I was low-key shrooming during our interview. And I hit send. I sent it. And then, you know, you do, you do something like that and then you sort of wait. And, uh, you know, the hours go by. I was like trying to put it out of my mind. Like, listen, you came clean. You did what you had to do. This guy probably thinks, you know, you're weird, and now he knows why. And uh, as these things go, you know, it, like, I didn't know. Would he write back? Maybe he would just be like, whoa. Delete. But, uh, no, he wrote back the next day, and uh, he was incredibly gracious and was essentially laughing and also told me that he had no idea and that he thought the interview went well. And uh, I think he's right. I, like, I genuinely think he's right. I listened to the playback. I was like, oh, this is great. We sound good. 
with a couple of exceptions where I'm sort of uh, dazed, but I don't know. I, I appreciate uh, Sam's patience and generosity with me. I appreciate him making time to be here with me in my uh, afflicted state and to uh, have a good conversation. And I'm pleased to share that with you right now. Here he is, folks. This is Sam Lipsight. His new novel, One More Time, is called Hark. It is out there now from Simon and Schuster. This is Sam Lipsight. I guess what I'm always looking for is a container to hold it. I'm looking, and that can be the story, or that can be a character. That's, oh, it's a way in. It's a kind of access into it. And so then, what can hold all of this? And in this case, it was this idea of uh, the spiritual practice and these thought, these uh, kind of charismatic leader and uh, some people who are projecting their fears and desires onto him. That's the I'm describing the new book, Hark. But um, so that I mean, I think I'm always as I'm always looking for, I got all this stuff I want to put in, but what's, what's going to hold it? And so I'm always looking for that. So the container is, is the first thing. And the container in this case was the character? In this case, it was, the, it, was the, it was the dynamic between this leader and these followers and this idea of mental archery, which was so preposterous. I, I just found it, it was so stupid that I thought, you know, here's a challenge to write a whole novel around something this silly. Yeah. And to like... And to like <laughs> To actually build that. Yeah. Spend yeah. time. To build that world. <laughs> um, I felt like, they, like at some points I was like, is he channeling Tom Cruise? Maybe it was the name Kate. Yeah. And he kept using, like he kept, you know, he keeps using the name. Is that at all? I mean, well, it, I think I'm of a generation that is channeling Tom Cruise most of the time. Me too. That's why I recognized it. Um, and so, you know, another uh, thing that strikes me about you and your work is that, uh, like I was kind of saying, like it, it's angry. You can feel anger uh, in the comedy, but angry in all the right ways. Um, so I guess like bravo for having good instincts. Oh, thanks. And like a good moral sense. Um, but that's the way that I, I feel. It's like, oh, like thank God someone. Well, it's, there's that fine line between, you know, righteous and self-righteous. And you kind of want to be on the right side of that, I think. How do you guard against it? Do you have to scrub it out in the edit? Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes things you go over the top or sometimes you, uh, I mean, there's, I do so much revision. I, and I always say I, I really dislike writing. I like rewriting. I really love having something to play with. Getting that first draft is the torture. How do you, ways. how do you work? Like in terms of just like the, the, my listeners love this stuff. It's like the day to day. What's your schedule? Well, I because I uh, teach full time, I don't get those big chunks of writing time during the school year. So uh, a lot of the heavy lifting is happening in maybe the four months of the of the summer, that long academic break. Um, and so that's those are the days when I'm getting up and putting in six, seven hours a day, and just really going for it. And then. The, during the school year, I'm doing a lot more of the editing and more of the, uh, you know, playing with this chapter and playing with that one. But also, uh, there are days when nothing happens. But a, a teacher told me this a long time ago, and I always, I always remember it. Uh, even if you're just going to do 15 or 20 minutes, it's important because it. The danger is to say, oh, well, I don't have a lot of time today, so I won't do any writing. And you kind of lose touch with your with your project. You kind of, and but if you can just sit down and 
move a couple commas around and just read what you've been writing for the last few days. Even if it's 10, 15 minutes, you've, you're, you're keeping the current alive between right. the, the work and, and your brain. And, and I think that's really important, especially during those stretches when I'm not getting the, the big uh, writing hours in. But it seems like kind of a, a good little system. You know, you have like the, the academic year where you don't have as much time, but you're absorbing building up and then you get to that summer. I think that's, it is a good system. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's better to have some time where you can't plunge all the way in. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's something to that. I mean, there's a lot of time. I mean, I think everyone who writes knows that there's a lot of writing that happens unconsciously before you're even at the keyboard, but uh, you do still have to do the work of transferring that to the, (laughs) to the screen so, so unfortunate it's, it's a, yeah i know it's, it's a little of both the other thing is is i mean some writer, writers all work differently and so there's no there's no one system but i don't really start with a big plan i sort of feel it out and i let it develop and i follow it and i go sometimes just sentence by sentence and see where it, these utterances lead me so no outline so i think that once if i'm writing a novel once i'm kind of into it i'll start taking notes about where things can go and you know, I might scribble down on a piece of paper, you know, for tomorrow's writing session. You know, he goes to the store or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nothing really big, and I don't have some complete outline. I That first draft is just about discovering what I'm, what I'm writing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so you're in the summer, like the the heavy writing phase. Yeah, and you're in first draft, and you you're sort of just like finger painting in the dark. Like you're yeah. not. There's no pre-planned. Uh, how much permission do you give yourself in that phase to be messy? Well, I mean, it's there's an interesting tension there because I give myself total permission to be messy, and it's important to make a lot of mistakes and throw things away. But I'm also very around this stuff, not in life in general, but around this stuff, very anal. <laughs> and so I always want to fix everything right away and make everything neat and right and land correctly. And, I got some of that. And, and so I feel that maybe over the years I've accepted this as a productive tension between these two, two impulses, one to just let it all fly and the other is to like fix it immediately. And if I find the right balance between those two things, I'm kind of moving sideways, but it, I, I I get momentum and I can go. Well, but it seems like a healthy tension because that 
and, and, and like a necessary one, because if you're too permissive, then it's just a mess. Right. And if you're too, I got to fix it, then you don't let yourself. Then you become a perfectionist and you can't right. get to somewhere interesting. Yeah. And I think too, because you work, uh, in a silly vein, you know, comedically, like you have to let yourself be silly. <laughs> And probably entertain, I would imagine, some like jokes that don't work. And yeah. Some... Oh well, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was. It's you know the work of a sit-down comic. You know, you're <laughs> cracking jokes, and some work, and some don't. But the thing is, you have to. Your the silliness also demands a very serious attention and precision because if it's off at all, it's really sucks. Right. And so that's that's to me always the 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 line I'm writing is if I don't get this to work perfectly, how do you know? Well, you just know. I mean, I, I mean, maybe you don't know because some, sometimes people say this sucks, but I mean, do you have like a reader who's like, it's good. Or do you just have like an inner in, you know, barometer? well, first you have to trust your, you know, the person inside you who sits or who's the one sitting on your shoulder saying, you know, that's, that's good. That's not good. Right. Although, but I also have people who read my work and, Give me feedback. I could trust it. Same people for every book, or does it vary? Well, it's a few people, but um, I mean, my wife is the the first line of defense, so uh, I give her everything. And, if it doesn't get past her, right, then it doesn't go into the book. <laughs> but uh, but then you know, I have a few other people that I, I show things to. But then also, this, this book I started it in 2012, and I was I was working on it for a long time, so I was able to really see what could stand the test of time and what didn't, hmm. so I could pull things out. That that just maybe seemed funny at one point, or and not just funny, but poignant, because the book is you know it's in the comic vein, but of course there are all sorts of there's the gamut of of human experience and feeling in it, or I try to have that, and so you know is is this really funny? Is this really moving? Is this you know, or is or did it just seem so at the time? That's a lot of it. So 2012, that's interesting because uh, you, you like the bulk of work on this book was done pre-Trump. Yeah. And yet it seems like, I guess, with that knowledge, kind of predictive. Well, I mean, I don't think it was predictive. I think all the stuff that, I mean, Trump is sort of the the, the culmination yeah. of a lot of stuff that was happening for a long time. I know, but not most, not everybody's picking up on that. Right. But I mean, a lot of the stuff that, you know, we are talking about, whether it's climate change or, you know, the wars we've been fighting or rising inequality, all those things, they they were in the air long before Trump. You know, Trump just made every, made, was like the absurd exclamation point on it, on it all. But I think that, so like, I was c c interested in those things in the book, and those were the sources of the, you know, the, the comedy and the anger in the book were those kinds of things, and they predated Trump. I mean, not to say Trump hasn't moved it all into some extra awful place, but it's not as though that everything was perfect in this country. Right. And then we elected Trump. Right. Well, I mean, like, it's like, you know, you hear people say, he's not the disease. He's like a symptom. Exactly. I mean, I was saying this last night uh, to some people. I said, if you, run, if you run headlong off a cliff, don't blame the cliff. And Trump is the cliff. Right. Like, well, why, why did we run? Why did we do that? That's, that's the question. Well, and, and I was just going to say, like, what is the disease? Yeah. Like, I mean, he's a symptom of the disease. Okay. But, like, what's the, is the disease greed? Is it hatred? Is it all of the above? Is it ignorance? Like, it feels like this big soup yeah, of complicated uh, human failing. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just this complicated swirl. You're right. And there's, I think there's hate, and I think there's also fear, and people feeling like 
there's not going to be enough for them. There's like scarcity. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of things, but I mean like not entirely unfounded. Well, no, because they're, I mean, if you look at the numbers, the American, you know, I'm not here to talk about my new book on the economy, but you know, <laughs> oh wait, what <laughs> wages have stagnated for the last 30 years. I mean, it, there's, there are reasons that this stuff festered the way it did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the healthcare, all of it. You know. So a theme in not yeah, only, so I just want you to know that I'm running for president. <laughs> <laughs> this is your big minute. We're breaking news here on the other people podcast. Um, so I want to talk to you about success, like the, the notion of it and like how you define it. I, I I'm interested in this. Like, uh, what does that even mean? to actually succeed as a human being. I mean, I know what the conventional definition is. I certainly know what like the American definition seems to be, but I'm not satisfied with it. No. I mean, I, I think that I wrestle with this a lot in my books. Yeah, I know what the characters <laughs> do just this idea that gets handed to us about what, what success looks like. And, um, and a lot of it is, seems pretty materialistic and a lot of it seems, uh, hinging on appearances and i think that a lot of people are realizing that they've been sold a kind of a bill of goods on on that stuff and uh yeah i mean for me being a successful human is i mean it has to do with the way i am with my family and my friends and just the kind of person i am and and the kind of energy i give off and and the ways i can be of use and not and not just be someone who is uh taking Right. Well, and I feel, and that's success as opposed to having some yacht or something. <laughs> well, yeah. Having stuff, yeah, yeah, getting yeah. like some sort of status. I mean, I guess you need some of that in life. Like you can't get your book published unless you do, you got to jump yeah, through you, certain, you have hoops. to jump through some hoops to get to the place where they will publish your book or give you a job teaching. And I mean, that's all true. And so there, there are, markers of success in, in one's life, but that's not really how you're, I think ultimately as you get older, you're not measuring yourself that way. Well, and I think too, like more thought, I think we'd be, we'd all be better off if we, you know, I'm speaking kind of collectively, um, put more thought into the consequences of the work that we do. We were kind of talking about that before we came on, but it's like, I, that's always on my mind. I just want to be non-toxic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I feel like making uh, literature and teaching writing and literature is about as good as you can get. I mean, at least in terms of my imagination and uh, the kinds of things I'm interested in. Uh, and I think all too often in kind of our corporate driven society, you know, you wind up in jobs that can easily compromise you, even if you have better intentions. Oh, I think that happens all the time. And even doing, even teaching, and there are ways that you can be compromised. Or, uh, I mean, I don't think anyone really. The problem is that under the system, no one really escapes. You know, and the only people that escape are people who are so independently wealthy that they don't have to do anything. Right. But uh, if you have to work for a living, you're somehow participating in the problem, whether you want to or not. But then you have to try to find other ways. To compensate for that, I guess. Well, that's what I've been thinking like lately. I'm like, you know, you, you, these people with these incredible fortunes and they're still doing stuff. It's like, just, just go on vacation. You did it. Like, <laughs> 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 um, 
I, I got to say, too, when it comes to mental archery, which is like... And of the, course, just to finish it, I mean, if you do have that fortune, you're still participating because your money is doing things, you know. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just give it away. <laughs> do some good with it. Uh, but mental archery and sort of new age spirituality, is this something you fall prey to at all? Because I feel like I'm kind of the perfect mark for mental archery. I'm ready to sign up. Yeah, I think we got to form a group and really get it going. Um, Are you, but I feel like you're sort of, I feel like you're too smart for a lot of that stuff. Well, right? I think I was, I think I was interested. I didn't want to just make fun of that sort of thing, but I could, because so many people I care about and myself included are kind of always wondering, is there some answer? Is there something that we can, some practice that will deliver me from this pain? This horrible <laughs> suffering. Yeah. <laughs> just the, the pain of getting up in the morning. But, uh, uh, so I think so many people I, I know are, you know, try this or try that or mindfulness stuff, yoga, whatever it is, meditation. Yeah, we all, we've all, we all dabble and we all, or, I mean, not, I won't speak for everyone, but I know a lot of people. And so I was interested in kind of coming up obviously with an absurd version of it. And also, uh, it's a very, I mean, as the book goes on, it becomes the very American story of. Some people find founding a practice that may be useful or may not be, but then others swoop in to monetize it and make a profit and try to build an empire on it. Deets. Yeah. <laughs> Deets. <laughs> I like that character. Your character names are good. Thanks. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's like, a, it feels like and your book addresses this with all of the political strife, climate problems economic there's a kind of a rubber meets the road moment that is rapidly closing in on us in terms of like human suffering uh, damage inflicted by humanity on our planet and on each other and on other species and like what to do about it like it feels to me like we're gonna have to make revolutionary changes is that too strong? <laughs> well, no, something's got to give. Right. Yeah. I, you know, and I, it's a lot of it's beyond my understanding, but I really, it seems that there has to be some major political shift and some major decision about, you know, who we're going to be as a, as a species or like, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> do you have faith? Do you have faith that we can make those changes? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I sometimes hear very optimistic people say, well, humans have done amazing things in the past and uh so perhaps perhaps we can but uh first we got to get rid of this president no kidding and then uh then like we'll see. sooner like fast yeah like i'm totally i'm you know everyone's always like Mueller, Mueller, and i'm like Mueller needs to hurry up i know he's uh it's like work faster Bob. it feels like he's dragging his feet like you know is he just taking really long coffee breaks or i don't think he can afford it i think we need to uh i mean he's not I mean look look there are a million uh indictments and convictions it's not like he's done nothing oh of course i'm just kidding but it does yeah. feel like a race against the clock and i mean i everyone's now acting as though it's a foregone conclusion that trump would lose the next election and that, that I, just the other day, I was thinking that's a really dangerous thought. Yeah, we're, like, all if gonna get, if, we're all going to get complacent again, or if there's even free and fair elections to begin with. Yeah. You know, the fact that that he would, in, uh, considering all that has happened 
to his the people in his orbit how many indictments and convictions and pleas and flips like all this i mean this is an absurdity any other president would have been gone you know last year yeah <laughs> the fact that he's even projecting any kind of confidence that 2020 is a thing should scare the shit yeah, out of yeah. all of us and should make us pay very careful attention to the integrity of our elections because if you're that confident about it, like, what's going on? I'm suspicious. Well, we already know that there, you know, fishy stuff happens, so. Yeah, too much. Um, did you watch, are you into cults? Did you watch any, like, because I watch all these documentaries about cults and cult leaders and the dynamics of, uh, like, you know. Yeah, I used to be really into cults. I, I mean, not myself. <laughs> <laughs> you spend some time in a cult? I never spent my time in a cult, but I, I was always in, when I was a kid, I loved movies about cults and read books, you know, about various cults. And uh, I get, I even uh, my first novel, The Subject Steve, sort of had a cult in it. So, I, you know, it's something I've been toying with uh, as a theme for, for a long time. Uh, I also, I realize that it's a great way to bring a lot of disparate characters together under one roof if they're all in a cult then you don't have to explain why they're all there together right. <laughs> <laughs> got a great reason to be hanging out yeah um but i just i i'm very i've always been interested in the dynamic between a, a certain kind of leader and and others and the kind of what that charisma does and the way people project themselves onto a figure like that because the thing about hark in this book is you know, where he's not that he's not like very he's not conventionally developed as a character the way the others are. He's kind of this cipher in the middle of it all, and so like you don't know what kind of toothpaste he likes. In the same way, like if you think of you know famous figures like you know from 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 history, that those aren't the kinds of details you really know about them. Whereas a character in a novel, you kind of get these all these fine grained details about. So uh, I was interested in, do, in exploring that in this book. And I, you know, I was remembering uh, the other day. I was when I was a kid, I was really freaked out by this movie I saw. I think it was Canadian, but it was called Ticket to Heaven, and it was about. Um, it already sounds terrifying. And it was about Moonies, uh, I think. And they had to sell the flowers on the side of the road, uh -huh. and uh, and I think there's a really terrifying deprogramming scene in it. But uh, I just remember as a as a kid being freaked out because they're they're all hunched in the van about to go out onto the street to sell the flowers to for the money for the cult and they're just chanting bring in the money stamp out satan bring in the money stamp out satan and it, that's etched in my mind <laughs> i mean it's not yeah you're not even trying to fool anybody yeah. at that point um yeah it's like you know i like, and that's what I'm trying to do with my work, to bring, <laughs> to bring in the money and to stamp out I, uh, I'm, but the, Just the basic dynamic of people in a cult or a cult-like group just looking at each other and agreeing that the bullshit, they've just agreed that this bullshit is true. Right. But we do it in lar on a large scale in the more accepted religions and we do it in our political system in some way. I mean, there are right. other places where we all sort of agree on a reality. So I think that's one of the reasons we are fascinated by cults is because they're not that different from 
some of the other institutions that just seem normal to us. Right. Well, I mean, you're, we're in Los Angeles. Like yeah. every time I drive past the Scientology Center. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just like, wow. And it's normalized. And I'm like, do we realize how crazy this yeah. is? I mean, aren't they still illegal in Germany or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and not, but like, and not without good reason. But yet here, it's just like, you know, it's part of the furniture. Um, did you think about that at all? Is that something you've ever done reading about or been fascinated well, by? Well, I've, I've read some of that Lawrence Wright stuff, that book. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's great... That didn't really play into this book, but I, that's a fascinating story. And then what about... Uh, you said you're kind of a sit-down comedian. Uh, did you ever try stand-up? I thought about get. I thought about it when I was younger, and I just realized that I one I didn't really want to get up in front of an audience and do that. But it was more that the way I was funny, I realized worked on a page more than it did. It, what and a, a stand-up is doing a lot of stuff with language, but also there's a lot of body stuff. There's facial stuff. There's vocal inflection. There are all these things that make a great stand-up comedian and all i was really interested in was the language part so it felt more right to and then i mean i wanted to write fiction i wasn't just wanting to write jokes i just i was turned on as as a young writer and reader by writers that i thought were hysterically funny but also very deep and moving like who barry hannah would be one um grace paley thomas mcguane um, Stanley Elkin, and these are writers who I think, you know, could get to the whole gamut of human experience, but also be screamingly funny on the page when it when it uh, called for it. Yeah, and so that was a big revelation for me because before then I was a reader and I liked books, but I always thought that they had to be serious, and I always thought that nothing you couldn't be good and funny. Like there was some, something wrong with it if it was funny. Then it was just like a or deep a, a and bathroom funny. joke book or something. Yeah. And so the discovery that literature could be deep and funny at the same time was a big moment for me. Absolutely. And and uh did you ever try like open mics or anything like that? No, I never tried anything. Like okay. That. I'm just yeah. It was just all in my all in my mind. I had a stand up routine in my mind maybe, but yeah. I, I had a solid five in my fantasy. <laughs> Um, and then I became, you know, I was friendly with some comics. So I, you know, I saw what the real thing was and that made me understand that I'd made the right decision. I was going to say, yeah. um, there's a, there's kind of a recurring motif in your book where, um, a father is looking at his kids and being like, my God, you've inherited a doomed world. Yeah. And that hit home with me so hard. Uh, do you have kids? Yeah, I do. So you feel that too? Oh, yeah. And like that guilt about like, did we do the right thing yeah. by having kids in this fucked up world? Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't... It comes and goes, that feeling, but it's it's it, it's still always there on some level. Yeah. It's, it's just a shame that like it's like the stakes are that high um, and that bringing children into the world should... I don't know, it should be like a beautiful, happy thing, <laughs> like without a question. Yeah, and it is, but you know... It mostly is, but this this thing lingers, this idea. And I don't know if it's different for us than it was. I mean, other people have brought children into the world during dark times, but maybe it's just the sense that, like, ever, there's this apocalyptic feeling in the air, like it's ending. Not like it's bad, right. but it's that it's ending. And yeah. that's, what's, that's what is really strange about it. And is it 
What if you were, I was thinking about if you lived in, you know, Europe in 999 AD or something and, you know, your local priest had told you that the world was going to end by religious prophecy, you know, within the year. Well, what did that feel like? Was that a similar feeling? And if you had kids, were you like, oh, what did I do? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like next year, the sky is going to open up and everything's going to end. And I feel bad about bringing this lovely child into the to the world. I mean, possibly <laughs> I like I, that's the thing. Like, you know, I, I think like anybody who has kids, you're like, that's the greatest thing. Like, I don't regret it at all. Of course not. Yeah. And then at the same time, you worry about your children's future. And when I look to the future. I'm not like I don't think dispositionally apocalyptic. <laughs> I don't either. You know, I'm like pretty like I think I'm kind of optimistic, a little bit fatalist, you know, a little bit of fatalism. But it just seems like best case scenario, it's going to be a very tumultuous situation with the climate. And I don't know. I don't think. Like I guess my concern is you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like it's done. And maybe I think that's you can, the feeling. Yeah. Maybe you can mitigate like some of the worst parts of it if we get our act together super fast and really do dramatic things. But even with that, it sounds like from what I'm reading, it's still going to be like a lot of displacement and resource problems. And yeah, and then you just imagine your children sort of in the middle of that chaos. And Thanks, I that, Dad. I hope they can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I worry. My son is uh, has disabilities, and I'm just like, I'm just like, I I gotta make so much money. Yeah, I gotta just like, I I gotta buy him an island. It's like this feeling I have, and maybe it'll be better than I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think it will be. I'm, I had my my grandfather lived to be about 101, and uh, you know, he lived, I'm sorry. Yeah, he, lived to, <laughs> he was like born in like 1904, maybe, and you know, he he listened, he and his he had these older brothers who built this crystal, like little home crystal radio set, and they he he remembered sitting around the table listening to the SOS distress signals from the Titanic um, as it was going down, and so and you know he lived through a couple world wars and the depression and and all this stuff, and at the end of his life he just said, you know, listen, nothing is nothing is as bad or as good as you think it's going to be. So <laughs> maybe there's some wisdom in that, yeah. though. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Maybe we're taking it all too seriously, and you know. But like you said, it just feels like well, because we have these scientists saying that it's over, you know, that it's done, like yeah. you just said. So that's what's that's what's different. There's not that. Well, if we just do this and do that and rise up and change, we're kind of being told that that window passed. But I don't know if it really did or not. Well, and what about like geoengineering? Yeah. You know, isn't that like, what if like you got to like somehow refreeze the polar ice caps or I don't even know how you would do that. This kind of thing is like way beyond the scope of my imagination. Well, I got these specs here. I wanted to show you. <laughs> <laughs> Have you solved this? Please tell me you've got this under That's control. That's the next book, how to refreeze the polar ice caps. <laughs> uh, Moving out of fiction, just into straight engineering, really. <laughs> another thing that I was thinking uh, with regard to Hark is just this, like this kind of idea that like a comedic figure uh, rising to a level of, and I guess Trump is sort of this way though. He's not at all intentionally comedic. He doesn't even laugh. No. Um, it's the true sign of a psychopath, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that, uh, I think that like there is maybe an openness 
or like the things have gotten so absurd that like a comedic figure I could see resonating with people in a serious way, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, do you ever have that sense? Like, wow. Like I could, like, I feel like it happened in Italy where a comedian. Oh, right. He's like the guy who became a politician. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, but it was also, uh, what was the guy, the Ber- Berlusconi? Yeah. Who's very much like the Italian Trump. Trump. Yeah. And in the aftermath of him, essentially there was like this opening where things had gotten so goofy that the comedian came in and just started, you know, I feel like we're sort of ready for that in America, like psychologically. I'm not saying I want it to happen, but it, do you ever feel like that? Like some, like some kind of comic figure could become a, a leader. Like some kind of comic figure could start a GoFundMe and start doing right. viral videos. And well, it's not going to be Louis C.K. That's <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I'm just like I think at this point, like it's like open season. If there's anything like Trump did that is uh, interesting, or I don't know. But one of the things that he changed is I feel like he changed the rules of what's acceptable from a candidate. It's like you don't have to pay your dues anymore. I feel like those lessons have been learned by the system now. And like, it's, yeah, I mean, we were building towards it. You know, we had Ronald Reagan, who was an actor, and he, but he, at least he did some time as a governor before. And then we had you know the weird Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I feel like the groundwork was laid for this for years. That's right. Um, wasn't Jesse Ventura and all that stuff. So that, you know, that cartoon, uh, the cartoonization of, of politics was going on for a long time. I, I'm wondering if like we can get, if the next president is going to work very hard to get back to the kind of formality and, and, uh, you know, serious procedural, um, kind of, uh, attitude and, and be a very kind of dry persona. It almost because what, what do they say? Like David Axelrod used to say that like like every presidency is like a correction to the yeah. last one. So like you had George Bush who was like so like what we're going to want is like a technocrat. Yeah, we're going to want somebody who like yeah. knows how to do government and is very drab and kind of you know. So who's that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> who's the drabest in the field? It's going to be. A, I always say it's like a clown car. There's going to be so many people yeah. up for it. So. Um, so do you have, are you working on another book right now? Like, or do you finish a book and then do the tour and then start, start after that? Or do you, you always have multiple projects going? I've been working on some, I've written a few stories, but nothing, uh, nothing that I would call a book. It's always a great idea to have another project going before your newest thing comes out. So you're not kind of just checking the internet for <laughs> see what's going on with the book that you have out, but you have something else to do you read reviews on sometimes. Yeah. I mean, do, it depends just like, like just people tell you, or are you just like, okay, I know this is coming and I'm going to go to the New York times or I'm going to go to wherever. And yeah, what, I mean, sometimes they'll say, Oh, this review came in and you know, if it, sometimes I'll, you know, a friend will tell me and sometimes I'll, I'll find it. Uh, and then sometimes I'll, you know, I'll read it. And sometimes I can just tell by the headline that I don't want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's the beauty of a headline. Yeah. But I, okay, so uh, there was a thing on LitHub just like came out today. I don't know if you heard of it. <laughs> but it was talking, it was basically they do this feature where it's like, you know, a book comes out and it polarizes critics and they'll do like a back and forth. And I started to think, like, I think emotionally, um, you know, the, uh, the first obvious thought is like, well, of course you want everybody to love it and applaud for it. 
Uh, that's what we want as artists is you want to put something out of the world. You want everybody to be like, this is great. But then I started to think about it more and I was like, is that really the ideal scenario? Like when you put something out, isn't a, like a polarized response the ideal? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there are two things. Intellectually, I want the polarized response and I totally agree with that. And as it turns out, I almost always do get the polarized response. I get, he's amazing and burn him. <laughs> 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 Nothing in the middle. <laughs> Nothing in the middle. But sometimes, but emotionally, you want, of course, as you just said earlier, it still would be great if everybody loved you. But, but that you understand that that, I almost have, there are almost kind of four categories. There's the, there's the smart good review, and there's the not that smart good review, and then there's the smart bad review, and then the not that smart bad review. And the thing that's really annoying are the are negative reviews that are dumb, because then you just feel someone is, you know, was not qualified to really review the book, and is now blocking in a way the others from reaching it because people read there's so much to read and see and listen to that people read reviews they're looking for a reason to not read a book or not see a movie well this is how i and feel so, and so yeah and so like that's what angers me is when someone who really doesn't know what they're talking about and has no business reviewing a novel to create becomes that gatekeeper yeah i i couldn't agree more and i also find myself getting frustrated i don't know if this would fall into the dumb good review yeah. category but over and over again i read book reviews and it's like an effusive review for the most part and it, it goes like 75 percent. the first 75 percent of the review is all the reasons that it's a great book that you should read and then there's always that bit at the end where it's like but and i stick it in at the and very the, end at yeah. the very end and i'm just like don't do this to me like yeah. not that you can't offer your criticism but it just the format feels lazy it i really, don't know something about it frustrates me and then the whole idea is so that you're supposed to finish the review feeling like, well, I guess there's something wrong with it. So I shouldn't read it. Yeah. And that like that, what was the point of the review? If the point of that end is like, the, it feels like the reviewer like covering bases. Yeah. It's like, well, just in case like I'm wrong for liking this, yeah. I'm going to say that there are some bad things about it just so I can feel like I, you know, I don't know. It feels just cheap. like it's, yeah, it's like just in, I don't want you to think I'm a sap. Right. <laughs> But I think, yeah. like you know, like you said, there's so many different, uh, not just books, but so much media vying for our attention in the culture that we're living in, that if you really love a book, just be effusive. Yeah. We need effusive. And or have you, criticism, but say, you know what, this book, I don't mind a review that says, I, you know, there are elements that I didn't like as much, or I was disappointed in this part of it, but it gave me a lot of pleasure in these other ways. And, and I, I think that that's a fair review. Maybe the sequencing is what I'm like, yeah. bitching about. It's like just intersperse your no, criticism sure. don't no, just save it up like for the this end big setup yeah um so and then what about writing for the screen well i haven't done much of that i i i wrote a a tv pilot years years ago that hbo bought but never produced what was it called it was called people city and uh they were kind of i think they were choosing between it and this other show that went nowhere called Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible choice. Yeah. What do these people know? Yeah, they yeah they don't know their business. <laughs> anyway, uh, but that was it was an interesting experience. And then I haven't really done. I I guess years ago I I just for fun wrote a screenplay or two. And lately I've been playing around with something with a friend of mine who's a director. But 
We'll see. I, I kind of, I'm always, I'm a little, I love movies. I watch a lot of films and I watch some TV too. But uh, what kind of movies do you like? Is there like a genre that you gravitate towards? I like, I like things that are, I mean, I guess I like movies that are kind of like the books I like that are kind of strange and funny and uh, uh, coming at things from an interesting angle. But then I will also sit and watch some dumb shit for for hours if I'm on the couch. And I, I have you mo- seen The Masked Singer? My wife. Oh, and- I've heard about this show. This, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like you're sitting there for a half an hour waiting to find out that Terry Bradshaw is wearing like a donkey costume. Right. Like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I saw the, the the promo for that, I just thought that is genius. That's people are going to just sit there and watch this show. They love it. And yeah. I get, I mean, and the thing that yeah. there's like that moment where you're like, this is the dumbest fucking thing ever. And then you sit there and you watch it and you're like, I totally can't stop watching. This. <laughs> I can see the addiction there. <laughs> I feel that way about American Ninja Warrior. That's another one of these dumb shows where I'm just like, I fucking love it. It's like just people doing an obstacle course. I don't know if I've seen that one. I don't watch a lot of the reality ones for some reason. I just, I mean, maybe I'm just, I never really got. I watch a lot of documentary. Yeah. Do you watch documentaries? Not that much. Sometimes I just finished watching like a two part Elvis documentary. Oh, what was that about? Yeah, just Elvis I mean, Presley. Just like any special aspect of the Elvis no, it's story? Like, it was like the HBO documentary, okay. you know, and so it was trying to be, I think, comprehensive, but I still feel like I didn't get to know him. It was just like, what was it? Like, you know, he, uh, I never really, I know he's supposed like the king of rock and roll, and uh, you have a certain respect and reverence for what he had created, but I never like sparked the music the way that some people do. Yeah, I mean, I had this weird, when I was in kindergarten, I had this, classmate who for some reason was really into elvis and he made me sit in his room and listen to elvis records and i think i pretended to be into it for a little while but yeah it was never but i mean we're not of a generation that would have been into elvis anyway no but it's like but i think it's like the whole he's the king and i wanted to like i have some desire to like understand where you know why someone would be the king music history (laughs) i had a friend in college who was like deep into elvis and like would you know like put on the costume and stuff at parties. And I was just like, what are you doing? Um, but yeah, I watch a lot of docs and, um, you, you, have you read white noise? The DeLillo yeah. books? So you remember the whole Hitler Elvis showdown between the two professors? No, this is how bad my memory yeah. is. It's kind of a funny scene. What but, was it? Well, the, you know, the, the narrator, I guess, is the, you know, uh, director of Hitler studies at the university. And then he's giving this lecture and then one of his colleagues comes in and they kind of trade off facts about Hitler and Elvis in this kind of glorious dance. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Biographical analysis. It's really, it's really a great scene. That's an excellent novel. Um, I ashamed that I can't remember like key details, but it's been a long time. I remember the line of station wagons. Yeah. yeah. The opening. Yeah. It's worth rereading. Yeah, that's another, like, he's another writer who's, like, eerily predictive and, oh yeah you know, sort of knows everything. He really, yeah, he's, that guy's a genius. Have you sure. ever met him? I have, yeah. See, what's he like? Because he seems like, he's like an unknowable figure in a good way. Um, he doesn't really do a lot of press, and he's not... No, he's, well, he's from the old, like, silence, exile, cunning right. school, the James Joyce thing. But uh, he uh, he's actually a very... You know, nice guy. I mean, that sounds very mundane, but I remember I I once was talking to him and I was kind of all in a state because he's such a hero and I was 
you know, really nervous and and having a hard time keeping my shit together while I was talking to him. <laughs> and he was just being, you know, pl- pleasant. And, uh, and you know, he he asked me, like, what I was working on. And I, you know, I told him, but I was all all over the place. And then I... 45 minutes later. <laughs> and I asked him what he was working on. I think he was working on that book, uh, Falling Man at the time. But uh, he said something like, well, Sam, I've been working on this book. And it's just, it's really been this great experience lately. It just, it's just, and I remember he said, it's, it's just curling out of my typewriter like a beast right now. And uh, and I was so nervous that I just said, it just blurted out, I just blurted, well, I look forward to curling up with your beast. <laughs> <laughs> That's and one of those ones for like after it, like that night. And he just home. gave me this little look and <laughs> walked off to talk to somebody else. Check, please. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that's, I mean, you know, the thing, too, that's, I think, intimidating about him is that um, there's the, like, the wicked smart, he's incredibly intelligent, but there's there's also, like, not a ton of humor in that work. There's some. Oh, uh, actually, I find it really funny. I think he's really funny, but it's super dry. It's yeah, not, I mean, I guess White Noise is the... That, White that Noise one, is very funny. Some of it's not as funny, but I'll say some of those earlier books, like Great Jones Street's really funny. Right. Um, End Zone's really funny. Um, what's the one about the big, the big magnum opus? The one about the artist and I read the thing and I can't fucking remember. You mean Underworld? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one's not that funny. That's not that funny. But yeah. the earlier ones, Libra's not that funny, but White Noise is really funny. And some of those early, yeah, even Ratner's Star, which is this weird one about math. That is math? Not one, or, math. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not one of the most... Read of his, but it's, I like that one a lot. Uh, yeah, I've read like Libra, Underworld, and White Noise. But like, Endzone is the one about the college football players, and that's that's hilarious. And uh, well, he's great at. I mean, yeah. like working in a satirical mode, it's really hard to do and to sustain and to. I guess I don't think of it that way because if if I did, then I would psych myself out. I I don't sit down and say. I'm about to write a blistering satire of, of American culture because I think I wouldn't know where to begin. Do you but, sit down to write comedically or is the comedy just an outgrowth of, I think the comedy is part of my filter. Um, like, so I'm going to describe things in that way because that's kind of my, one of my storytelling modes. Um, it's not the only one, but it's, it's a major one and it's, a, it drives, Things, but I think that it's part of how I see things, and so it's that people always ask, "Is it do you like stick the comedy in later?" And it's like, no, it's just kind of how I receive the world and see it, and both I find it both funny and sad at the same time, all the time, and so that's what ends up being on the page. Yeah. Do you ever get? Uh, have you ever experienced like huge creative block or anything like that in your life? Yeah, I mean, I, I go. I have periods when I either it's I can't write well or I. I just can't write or it feels mostly it's I'm mostly going to force myself to write something, but it'll just feel awful and be, be awful. And I think there are two, well, probably more than two, but I've experienced a couple different ways of being blocked. And one is, you know, I don't know, you know, what I want to write about. I don't know what to do. I just, there's nothing. And it's kind of like the well is empty, you know? And that's more, I just need time to fill it up, to be not trying to write so much. And to, I had this great teacher in college, uh, Ed White, Edmund White, the great writer, and he 
he's like, oh, Sam, you know, it's because of the whole Protestant work ethic thing that American writers, they write too much because they think they're supposed to write every day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I like that attitude. Yeah. Where did you go to school? I think I, I, went, I went to Brown for oh, college. Okay. And, uh, but then there's another, I guess, with the block thing. The other kind is, I, like, you can almost sense where you want to be, but you can't get there. And so you're always trying to find the way in. And so you're kind of, it's like circling in a building trying to find the door into it. Like a huge building. Because you know inside is your, all the stuff you you want to write about, but you don't know how to get in. And so that's that's another kind of, and that just takes actually writing your way to the entrance. Uh, what about your reading habits? I imagine like working in academia, you're like, I have no shortage of reading time because you're reading all your students' work. Yeah. But reading for pleasure, like, do you get burned out to the point where it's hard to even find time to read for pleasure, or do you... Well, I get to the point where it's hard to find time. I'm I'm always eager to do it. My greatest feeling is I'm reading this book because I want to, not because... And, you know, sometimes if I'm, teach, if it's, if I'm teaching a seminar, I get to teach books that I like, and so that's fun. But uh, it's nice to sometimes read a book and not... A, you're not reviewing it, you're not teaching it, you're not giving someone feedback on it, you're just going to, that's a nice feeling, I'm just going to read this and whatever stays with me stays with me and it'll be an experience. It's the best feeling in the world to have a book where it's like you cannot wait to get back to it. Yeah. I love that. Um, Is it easy for you to find those books? No. I mean, I, I, I don't, I think it's like anything else, they're... There are a lot of great books out there, but then there are a lot of books that aren't that great, or or that aren't that that aren't for you. Like I well, feel like yeah. the, I feel like this increasing pickiness as I get older, and I don't know if it's just the way it, it's the way of aging, or if there's something wrong with me, <laughs> you know. But it's like I, yeah. I'm trying to find. I always say the instruction manual, but uh, just that book that's like speaking to me at that particular moment in my life, and it's like every once in a while. I dial it up, but a lot of times, like I'm just like going through books, like searching for something, and I don't even know how to quite define it. Yeah, I I know the feeling. For me, I'm just I'm asking myself: Is this person? Does this person uh, listen to himself or herself to, as a writer? Can you tell? Is this person just seeing the sentences as these kind of vehicles for a story, or are they are they trying to do something interesting with this language? Are they hearing themselves sing? Basically, that's one question. And then, you know. Is there something that they're saying about life that is going to help me live and die? <laughs> I mean, it gets that that stark at, on some level. But that's how, that's how I feel. Yeah. Like that's what I mean by the instruction manual. Yeah. You know, like I really just want like what the the problem is life, and do you have something to say about it? Do you have something to offer? So, I mean, people ask me, you know, what do you read for just escape? And I don't read for escape. I watch TV for escape. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. But if I'm going to read, I don't want to read something that's, you know, I don't read escapist, whatever, work. I mean, I like the fact that you can escape into a book. And I like entering new worlds and stuff, but not stuff that just, I mean, I have, I know people who read, they read a book a day and they don't remember what it was because it was just, you know, like tissue paper. Right. Yeah. I can't do that. Yeah. I sort of envious of people who can just like literally pick up anything. Like, oh yeah, I read that. And I'm like, what? You did? Like, yeah. for me, it's much more serious to me. Maybe I need to lighten up. Yeah, maybe we both need to lighten up. Um, well, I, I, I feel like uh, you're doing really good work in the world. Oh, and, thank you, bro. Um, I feel like 
you're one of the funniest writers working today. Um, and it's just a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, and you said you just, you have some stories noodling. There's not another novel in the works. No, I mean, I'll, I'll get something going at some point, but for now I'm just, uh, taking it slow, taking it slow, trying to like, hopefully weather whatever storm we're in. Yeah. Do you know, do you have any sense of the ending for this particular like historical moment that we're in? Uh, they all seem so frightening. Twenty <laughs> fifth <laughs> Amendment. Quiet. I, you know, I was on the on the plane today, and I was reading this article in Harper's about our uh, relationship to China, the U.S. relationship to China, and all these. Ex- you know, a large percentage of experts predict a war between the U.S. and China within the next fifty years. I mean, can you imagine that? Oh my God! Like, but what would it even look like? This I is mean, the thing: is that <laughs> land war seems like sort of passe at this point. Yeah. Like, really inefficient. So then it's like information war, which is what we're living in right now. No, I mean, they're talking about military soldiers fighting. I mean, it seems to me that to even have that conversation. Well, I'm reading stuff on Twitter, which, you know, you have to put an asterisk next to it. Uh, Too much stuff. But it's like all of these big, huge fentanyl busts that we're seeing in the news. Yeah. Really, they don't make huge headlines because there's so many other (laughs) crises. But it's like, you know, the, the smallest tiniest little amount of this powder can drop a human dead well that's really that's a very scary it feels like chemical warfare yeah but like sneak attack and like people are addicted and just you know it's coming in from china and so i'm like well what is that like it, it feels like so much of this stuff i guess what i'm getting at is that when it comes to uh state versus state um bad action you know bad action it's one thing if it's like visible and we, we can see it and it's like, Oh, they're soldiers, <laughs> you know, like right. they're bad guys. There's airplanes. Like, but so much of this stuff feels invisible. Uh, and so you don't even know what's happening until it's happened. And that kind of feels like what happened in 2016. It's like the masked singer. really. And, that's, <laughs> and then at the end, it's fucking Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> Who knew? Um, well, I appreciate the time and I uh, wish you well on the rest of your tour. Are you done? Is this it? LA's the last stop or you got more? I got more. I got, uh, I'm going next week. I'll be in, uh, Tulsa and Austin and Oxford, Mississippi. Well, good luck. Safe travels. I hope you don't have to spend like two hours on the tarmac again. Thank you. Dude, I mean, these LA rains. I got some reading done. It was fun. Okay, good. Well, it's good to see you. Great to see you. All right. That is Sam Lipsight. There he is. Sam Lipsight. His new novel is called Hark. It is out there now from Simon and Schuster. Go get your copy. Sam has a Facebook page. I don't believe he has a website. I, I could be wrong. You can track him down online using uh, your favorite search engine. Sam Lipsite, the novel, one last time, is called Hark. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to, to uh, Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. The Other People Podcast is listener-supported. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support the program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That is patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to email me, if you want to send me a letter, let me know what you think of the program, if you want to tell me a story, whatever it is. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget, this podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available for free wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. It's free. Thanks again to Bloomsbury and the debut memoir, 
Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by T. Kira Madden, the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. If you want to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, you can do that at thenervousbreakdown.com. So, comedy of errors. What else can I tell you? That's my life. That's everybody's life, is it not? Is it not just a series of, you know, deep humiliations interspersed with moments of brief joy? And neutral tedium? I don't know what to tell you. Just got to get through it. Try to enjoy it. One moment at a time. Can't catch the wind. Coming up on the podcast on uh, Wednesday is a conversation I had with Pam Houston. She's got a new book out called Deep Creek. subtitle is Finding Hope in the High Country. Pam Houston coming up on Wednesday right here on the Other People Podcast. All right? All right. Okay. Okay.